Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to this New Books Network interview with Professor Sarah Federman, co-editor of Narratives of Mass Atrocity, Cambridge University Press 2022. I'm Sarah Federman. I now teach at the Croc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. And I came to this work, I had a corporate background, and then living in Europe for work, I started to see the impact of the world wars. And I was in advertising, actually. So I got really interested in the way messaging affects how genocides occur. Like, I knew advertising worked in business, so I figured it worked really well in genocide, too. And so I got, you know, interested in that. And so I then started to study narrative and post-conflict and conflict spaces. So that sort of became my journey. But I did not expect to leave a corporate career when I started poking at these questions. But I did. Well, that's a fascinating background. And um, I'd just like to... Maybe ask a, a brief follow-up in terms of uh, the the specific journey that you took on getting to this research, this book. Yeah, uh, I, I know a little bit about the background, and I've read the parts for uh, this interview here. I was just fascinated by the issues in terms of the the research process that you took, because yeah. you opened up a lot of, um, especially quite controversial interactions that you had at times with the people that you met um, as you proceeded towards completing the work. But so could you kind of give us some insights on terms of the process? So when I was in France in my, in that transitioning kind of careers, I was studying the role of the French national railways in the World War II deportations. And then how that company kind of avoided making amends and then made amends. This is not an uncommon journey, but I, that's what I studied. And one of the things that occurred to me over studying something for so many years is it was a it was a huge company during the war, five hundred thousand people. So I could see how like, okay, like it was a victim of the occupation. And gosh, well, there were some heroes like who were part of the resistance, and gosh, it was a perpetrator. <laughs> and um in terms of being complicit. And I got very interested in these complex characters because it's very our retributive justice system. We like to kind of sort it to good guy, bad guy, right? One regime comes in, they tell you who's good and bad. The next regime comes in, they tell you who's good and bad. And I was just finding so much more complexity. And the survivors that I met did as well. So I was mentioning to you briefly, um, I was grappling with this, you know, working on the book. And then I met my now husband on a genocide panel and found that he too was grappling with these things. And he had a year position at Harvard and was working on a book. And they gave him $25,000 to organize a conference. And I was like, can I do it? Because I got a lot of questions. So I got to invite all the people whose work I'd been reading and interesting scholars who've been grappling with this, but I hadn't gotten to meet. So we got to fly them all to Harvard to the Weatherhead Center. And we ended up spending a, you know, a number of days together working on this. And the book is those different selections of people who are researching on the ground in these locations. Um, so that's how it, it came to be. We made it open access so anyone listening or anyone around the world can, you know, link, click on the link and you can get any of the chapters because we wanted the people from these regions to be able to read about what's being, you know, said by these researchers. So we wanted that transparency. 
Fascinating. Yeah, an excellent idea as well. I was very surprised by the open access um, availability of the work. And I, I think maybe you mentioned a little bit the, the hope that people from various parts of the world could read in and see some of the information. Um, from an outsider's view, it sounds like it would be uh, an educational process or you know some, some more information, some more knowledge. But having read, uh, especially your particular chapter, just looking at the long-standing unresolved issues, in, in particularly the post-conflict environment, I think that's really um, useful and and quite honourable to have it open access because the problem that you're looking at often is propaganda, is the concerns of how information is manipulated and the stories told, uh, often by states to societies. And so for people to have um, greater access to information that questions those concerns, I think it is actually a very useful, very um, an interesting way of going about scholarship because it's not necessarily always the case, right? I mean, could you give us a little insight in terms of the questions or the ideas that um, led you to make it open access in particular? Yeah. Um, luckily, we we had the funds to be able to do it. And, you know, these books get really expensive and they get put on a shelf. And we, we're not in this work, to, you know, to, to like make money off these books, right? I mean, you're here because you really want to make a difference on the ground and help people who are in these contexts. I mean, you want to tell someone whose whole family to be murdered to like the other side, right? To like the party that did that. And that's like not what we're talking about. But we do know, we notice how these cycles of like, now you're the perpetrator, now you're the perpetrator, and just keeps it going on and on and on. So we really wanted to help add, not add complexity, because we're not adding it, reflect the complexity on the ground so that people who are navigating the post-conflict space can find their own ways forward to make meaning without feeling. And sometimes, honestly, it's odd. Like sometimes we come in with our like fancy transitional justice tools and like help them do trials, separate good guys from bad guys. And we have victim services and perpetrator, you know, and I, we were wanted to help the support what they knew what was happening, that there are people who saved somebody one day and then maybe ratted someone out the next day, right? Shared their food and then stole food. I mean, there's all kinds of complicated roles. And it's not only in post-conflict places, it's just honoring also the complexity of the roles that we all play in life. You know, we're not these pure, purely good or purely evil or purely heroic characters. Yeah, I think the, um, the concept there, the idealized identities, uh, it's a very uh, strong theme throughout the works in the book. And this concept that you're talking about, it is, it is a lot more complicated. It's, it's easy to say that. Um, but especially going into the cases. So if you could, that helps maybe just elaborate yeah. the, the, the the issues of why we would want to go back in and delve into some of these challenging pasts, because it it's is. also still present in many people's lives after the events. Yeah, I love how you said that, because for me, something might feel long ago, because it didn't happen to me. But what I learned from the Holocaust, I had interviewed 90 for, for my, my study of the French National Railway. And as they got closer to death, those memories like came out even more and more, and sometimes even more strongly. And, you know, anybody who's talked to have been a victim of these of these kinds of atrocities, not just the Holocaust, but 
tell you that they're never really free of them. You know, they're they're trying to make meaning and make their lives go on. And sometimes their suffering is used by the state or other groups to justify more war, more conflict. I had the opportunity to work with some of the now young adults whose parents were killed in 9-11. And some of them have gone on to study peace and conflict. And a number of them told me, they said, we're saying like, don't use the loss of my family, my trauma to justify your hate of Muslim people. And it took until they got to be in their college age to be able to fight back because they were so young when it happened. But this can happen even with the Holocaust survivors. They're like, wait, 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 don't use my tragedy to justify your agenda. You know, so uh, when you actually listen to people who've suffered and suffered no matter what role they were in at the time, um, you do see much more complexity. I, I felt like I wasn't adding it. I was just making room to listen to it. Does that make sense? I don't know the context you've studied. But yeah. same with the other people that we, the other scholars as well. Yeah, absolutely. This idea that it can be too uh, overly simplified, especially in that post World War II era in which it was, you know, we are the good guys here, the bad guys. We're setting up the constructs. And then essentially a whole generation, maybe even two in certain places, were then educated according to those. Mm-hmm idealized identities and so after the time after a space in which people can grow out of the immediate reactions the very emotional reactions then you can start to recognize uh as you draw upon and you you, as you say you listen to the uh testimonies of the survivors themselves in terms of uh well what good were the narratives afterwards and how they um influenced multiple generations so i I, the 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 ability to learn lessons from the case you drew upon uh from france very fascinating and then as you mentioned these ideas of going elsewhere in the world and seeing again this the use of narratives in uh very divisive ways um continues these cycles so if that's the case what would you say may help to not necessarily to reverse and and obviously mm-hmm. yes the, the work you looked at was the listening process of accounting and um, you know shining light on the, the the difficult and complicated aspects of identity during the process or maybe after the book have you found anything that might assist with uh, not necessarily narrative construction but it could be in terms of reconciliation, in terms of restoring uh, the fallout from conflict. Yeah. Um, well, one thing in terms of the narrative is is that they get sort of ossified, as you were saying, in passed down generations. And when someone wants to change them, the resistance is quite strong. Like uh, in whether it was Switzerland, as I was mentioning before we started recording, kind of their post-war history and kind of you know, committing to certain narratives. And then when someone actually challenges it or the truth comes out, there's like a almost an immune response to this new story. You know, we see it in the U.S. where, you know, adding, you know, like, okay, not all, you know, not all of our history was so glorious. And then it feels like, wait, then you're not a good citizen if you're, you know, not saying that everything was glorious. And so there's like a really like an immune response that happens everywhere. It happens within organizations too. So one piece that I think is a less comfortable part of this process is requiring those stories to shift. Like, um, you know, 
Switzerland really liked its story of neutrality in World War II. And when you start to scratch at that, it's not, it just militarily didn't participate, but it very clearly um, was at a very active role, an important role that went on long after the war. So uh, understanding that one, that we have these immune responses, even if like you have a discovery in your family, like you you have this family member, you thought they were a particular way, you learned that there was this terrible thing that they did and you can't reconcile it. Like we've all been through that with cognitive dissonance. So I do think cognitive dissonance training in some way, we need to get used to that feeling of just discomfort of, ah, I thought it was this way and now it's that way. And it feels like a, it almost hurts, you know, because we're, we're narrative beings, we're homo narrans, like we tell stories and when those stories get challenged, we feel like it's almost like a death in a way. Reconciliation is, a, is an interesting word because sometimes, you know, the burden gets on those who were harmed <laughs> to then, it's like, well, why don't you just stop being so angry and then we'll all be fine. <laughs> right. So reconciliation burden sometimes like, because those who did the harm are like, I'm happy to forget about it. Right. Like I'm ready to let it go. So I, sometimes reconciliation can be a tricky, a tricky word. Um, maybe restoration or healing. Maybe, you know, we're all struggling for the vocabulary around this and I don't have the perfect word either. Um, but I do think more restorative frames in our culture are more useful. Like we have a re more retributive justice system. We've got victim, we've got perpetrator, we punish the perpetrator, usually in a not very useful way. We like disincarcerate them or we make the company pay the bill. But those who did the harm never actually participate in helping those who they harmed. And maybe not directly, you don't want to see your torturer again, but maybe you like go rebuild the village that you destroyed or you go clean up that oil spill with your bare hands. Like, I don't know what you're going to do, but I think but also allow for re-entry when people do do harm and then restore that we like let them back into society. We're very cancely, you know, um, no matter what your political affiliation, there's a real rejection of of people and, and ostracism. So that's nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I I I tend to agree that the issue of accountability through restoring of some form. Um, it does make me think about the ideas where how how much is ever enough in those processes. It, it, are we obviously something is better than nothing? Um, it also makes me think about the the potential abuses because uh, I, I I couldn't pinpoint some specifics on cases, but it does seem to sound like some of those issues of mobilization in terms of well now it's. It's almost the potential risks of um, putting together the uh, restorative justice process or system, but then that may also at the same time open up some aspects of taking advantage of the situation. If it is in terms of um, having the option. Now, again, it's it's pretty theoretical in terms of where I'm going on that, but in terms of the back and forth that you started with in terms of okay perpetrator one side victim the other side and then we'll come together we'll figure out some way of getting on and then unfortunately we see the cycles also then flip where um once someone is in power then it could well be a, a case of here now we'll actually get our uh, retribution more so than continuing a, a restorative yeah. process and the yeah, risks that come to mind is Rwanda in particular is the one I'm looking at. Yeah. So, 
where that could be an issue and has been in the past um, yeah. in, in terms of the power shifts. Um, so, so the challenge of, of who, who gets to decide, you know, who gets to run those types of um, restorative processes, I think is, is a challenging issue. Yeah. And it's not one process. Like it's not the, like there's one tier truth and reconciliation commission and that like settles it all. Right. One thing I learned is there's no end. This is not like, and then it's done. Um, it's like the past lives with, with us. It just lives with us. And there are opportunities for, I mean, depending on, you know, I, I think those who did the harm were harmed in doing the harm. I mean, that harmed their own humanity by, by participating. So they too were harmed by being wrapped up in this. Someone more malicious intent, some got swept up in these regimes. Um, so restoration, restorative processes don't mean that you let people off the hook. I want to be clear. It's not like, okay, that just means like we hug and like try to figure it out and you don't have to do anything. <laughs> so I think that's sometimes is, a, is misconstrued um, there. But I think you're right that there's, you know, who decides? I don't, you know, I wasn't for me to decide about the French National Railway. I wasn't on that train. Didn't happen to me. So I just interviewed everybody who was kind of touched by it that I could find from the executives, the railway workers and so on to see what they thought. And kind of in asking those questions, like, you know, there, that's sort of a process too, is thinking it through together. Um, and the feeling some people like are going to be angry their whole lives and are going to want retribution their whole lives. And like, who's going to take that from them, right? But there are different um, alternatives and, and pathways. Um, you know, and, and we know that there can be a danger in assuming a victim identity your whole life, too, and not letting yourself have uh, additional chapters or aspects of your experience. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that your response to this, Sarah, also prompted a, a, a memory for myself in terms of the kind of exceptional but successful processes that we do see for rehabilitation of individual criminals. So like, and, and it, it also, uh, maybe provides a little bit more discussion on how complicated and how challenging it can be. Cause if you think of how, um, convicted murderers are treated in different legal systems and you have the exceptional circumstance I was thinking of is Scandinavian country, Norway, mm -hmm. where the murderer is essentially uh, rehabilitated to the point of the goal being some kind of uh, reintroduction into community, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. for many would just be a no start, right? It's a non starter for many groups in many places in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it also, and that therefore points out how case specific all of these studies are and all of these post-conflict um, aspects will be for the ongoing yeah. crisis and ongoing circumstances. Some places may well produce ways in which, and it's funny because you said, you know, get together and hug. Funnily enough, there some of the messaging from Rwanda mm -hmm. today is for mm -hmm. the perpetrator and this, the former, excuse me, the families, members from the uh, mm -hmm. surviving uh, people but relatives of the victims hugging. Yeah. It's, it's literally used yeah. in the messaging uh, for that particular yeah. case. So, so it can, it can work through um, a lot of work, but it's, it's almost a priority of the state. And if the state and corporations are not that fussed about working towards any of these types of endeavors, then it's not likely to happen in those places in the world. 
but um I would say that there is some but it does yeah it It does like even when like in Bosnia and there are places where people they find ways we might not recognize that as restorative practices or healing but they'll they'll have to in spaces figure out how to make their lives or Indonesia is another great example where this state has not recognized the 1965 genocide but there's lots of little pockets of people trying to make you know make it their lives work some of them still living right down the street from the people who tortured them so it's true. It's very helpful when the state, it can be very helpful when the state participates and when these corporations stop hiding um, what they've done. Uh, it does make it easier to have these conversations. And I like that story about the hugging because like sometimes that is the right thing. You know, you need a panoply of, of different approaches. Um, and most people aren't used to restorative frames or restorative thinking. We're not raised in it, in this, at least in the United States. So I think... Uh, there's a lot of you know misunderstandings about about what it means and how it works and and but anyone who's been in these processes they can be so powerful and connecting actually yeah 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 i mean it it is certainly um not just in terms of working with groups but also uh, in terms of education a uh, way of um i think we're well at least for myself i can speak by myself on this one the idea of just figuring out what the tools are that are available. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where I see where we are. Um, obviously, yourself and others are w- well more advanced in terms of what that looks like um, in terms of working in post-conflict environments. But maybe a little bit beyond the book as well. Could you? Yeah. Would you have uh, any insights for anyone listening in terms of? Well, what are maybe some groups, maybe some organizations that are attempting to actually formally recognize and kind of maybe even provide uh, tools that people can use, especially in, if for anyone listening that is in education, what might they look into in terms of resources that where they're not having to try to invent or reinvent a wheel, but people have already gone about a lot of this hard, hard heavy lifting and sound things yeah. that work. Yeah, and I and again, as you, I think you so aptly pointed out, so much is context specific, but there's something called the I don't know if people know the little book series, like Little Book of Restorative Justice, Little Book of Circle Processes, Little Book of uh, cool cool ways to talk about hot topics, and in them they have these like I find really accessible ways of running conversations that can be useful in different. Um, context so i mean they really are little books they're just short but just even trying one process can be sort of interesting and there's so many wonderful um trainings of course on like uh on these now oftentimes restorative justice is used more in you know criminal context juvenile context not for mass atrocities so that's sort of what we're pushing you know in the book is and there are others too who are saying this like and restorative way of thinking opportunities to take also opportunities to take those who participated in the harm and have them really engage in the restoration of their communities. Right now, we try through the International Criminal Court to hold the six, two people accountable or one, you know, 10 years, we get one person. And then the idea is, as Madeleine Albright was saying, expunge the collective. You let everybody else off the hook because you can't just have a whole country be guilty, right? Or a whole group be guilty. At the same time, I wonder, like, is there not something in between where, okay, you don't just keep ostracizing them, but why can't they participate in the structuring? 
I'm, I, and and do service. Like I, I, there's so much need after these atrocities. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to go literally face the person you know you tortured because that person probably doesn't want to see you anyway. But there's you can rebuild a school. You can you know organize the hospital supplies. So and this is a real reordering of society. But I don't. And I've been talking this about with some diplomats who work on these issues about how to really engage people in that because then they they grapple with it through their service too and and get present to what they can did you know so that's a missing for me and I think we I grew up actually in a uh, in a high school that did this on the small level so like whenever you broke a rule you had to you, your consequence was determined by you and other students and then you fixed the harm that you did and I was like this just makes so much sense like why would I go sit in detention I should like fix the thing I did so um, it's kind of a simple idea, right? And just requires some some creative thinking on how to implement it. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, it, it, in Arizona, where I am, that's it's exactly what they have just introduced. I think it's a year in or maybe two years in. Um, it's not quite in the structure of students are also a part of the process, other students, but it is a, they, they have the restorative conversations is the process great but they've also got the kind of older you know industrial uh, revolution era style draconian measures too so it's it's a little contradictory right now uh, because they quite they haven't necessarily worked through these best practices you know what works in more cases than others um so that it's still experimental um and, and so it is creeping its way into more uh, public school districts and state level education. I think it was Arizona that I saw this, but I'm, I'll have to double check where they're starting to do restorative processes for accidental homicides with these handguns. Like a kid might shoot their parent or shoot their friend or, I mean, or an adult might accidentally shoot someone like, because these guns are going off and there's no mens rea, like there's no intent to kill and you're not going to, um, so like they're doing, and there's so much grief, of course, like collective communal grief around this. Um, of course, I think they should have, you know, uh, a lot of different players there that they don't, that they don't bring to the conversation, but it's still, it's still an interesting approach that we'll hopefully see more of. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Work in progress. And it will always be, as you say. Yeah. For sure. Well, I wanted to... Um get back to uh, the, the book just for kind of wrapping up our chat here um, a little bit. So uh, I was getting into the, uh, the the deeper reading of your chapter in particular on the railroad systems and the issue of complicity in particular for uh, the issue when it came to, I believe it was Maryland Senate. Mm -hmm. hearing about um, the potential obligation of the railroad system uh, SNCF, the French National mm -hmm. Railways, and the question of their potential obligation to compensate, or I don't know ex exactly what the terminology mm -hmm. of the legal um, case was, yeah. of survivors in the United States who had moved to the United States. And I was, I was fascinated by one of the interactions you had in particular that you mentioned, but if you could just kind of give us an oversight in terms of, yes, it, there's plenty of work to do in all sorts of different environments and different ways, but when it comes to the kind of hard nuts and bolts of accountability in a legal format, 
what were, what were your observations of that particular case? Yeah, just just learning that there's no uh, international tribunal that handles corporations, and it's very difficult to use U.S. courts uh, for things that U.S. companies do abroad. So there's like legal impunity sort of prevails for these mass atrocities, but lawyers knew that. And in the U.S., they filed a class action lawsuit against the train company, which bids for contracts in the United States. A lot of companies that are involved in atrocities are bidding for contracts here. And the SNCF is an extremely strong uh, rail company. And so they bid for contracts all over the United States. I didn't know this before I did this research, but international companies do all kinds of Spanish trains, German trains, English trains, trains. And they often pitch together in certain um, mixes. But I learned that they what they were able to do is leverage survivor communities in different U.S. states, including Maryland, to get their legislators to pass legislation to make it difficult for the company to do business until they felt they had made amends. So it was using leverage where they had it. You know, the Dutch National Railways is also being asked to atone, but they don't have contracts in the United States. So there's no leverage from the U.S. on that company. So that's very interesting. Those are no D.C., you know, the purple line that's been built out of the metro or it's being built in the metro system. That's where it really blew up over this particular issue. Um, and it it raises the visibility. So those people who are advocating for reckoning or atonement, you've got to be got to know the law, but then you've got to be creative and, and take out campaigns. Um, when there was the big press to get the, the German corporations to settle, there was an ad campaign in the New York Times by a number of Jewish groups and others trying to raise awareness. And when you press, 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 the companies settle. Uh, none of these end up getting heard in court. So I don't, and the people I've asked who, lawyers who worked on this too, I, we don't know of any Holocaust case that was ever settled in court. They all get settled outside. Um, so that's the old broad overview, but if, is there any... I don't know what interaction you're referring yeah. to in, well, in the book. I'm happy right. to speak about it. Well, it's fascinating that, yeah, the the um, exchange between when you turned up and you were mentioning how you're, someone said, whose side are you on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe you could take it from there. Yeah, this was so, such so a, I mean, maybe it speaks to my naivete when I started this. I was like, I just want to understand the conflict and help, right? You're so, when you start in this work, you get just excited about being of service. And then you get polarized. Like in a polarized conflict, you walk in the room, you're going to be sorted. That's just how it's going to be because they're polarized. And so that you coming in with this frame of like, well, I want to understand. And we can like any kind of understanding is seen in being an apologist on the other side, you know? So you have like no friend and in some, it sometimes feel like, but yeah. So someone asked me whose side I was on when I went to go listen to the Maryland hearing. And I was like, no, I'm here to like study the conflict. He's like, no, no. So like you're on the company's side. I was like, what? Like, how am I on the company's side? I just said I'm here to, there was, it even like shows up in funny ways. Like I went to the, there was a treaty signed between France and the U.S. at the State Department that ended up, well, it it was in the treaty room, but it was an agreement signed between France and the U.S. uh, over this to kind of put this whole train thing to bed. And there was this issue about me being there. Like, was I pressed? I wasn't pressed. I had interviewed people. Like, they weren't even sure physically where to put me. And then they tried to not let me in. But then I went in with a survivor who brought me in as her guest and we were good. And I didn't cause any trouble. But the idea was like that, like, what are you as someone studying a conflict? Um, and it's, it's, I guess it's good to know because anybody that's into this may be doing this research or find themselves in it. And it's 
painful to get storied. And if you study something long enough, you become part of the story. Like you will eventually enter and then you become a character and then you will be storied by other people <laughs> um, for your role. And that's painful at a certain point because you lose control of how you are understood, which is, um, which is, I guess, what you're doing to them. So it's probably fair. Uh, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's sort of, I didn't see that coming. And, and sometimes it was... It was upsetting, but my advice right now working on this is like, if you just keep coming from a place of, and I'm sorry for lack of a cheesy word, but like love, like, I don't know what love is in this context, but like, I just want to come from like a good place and learn as I go. That sort of, if that's the intention, um, you, you can kind of navigate uh, as best you can, but there's a lot of pain, a lot of hate and a lot of hate looking for pain, looking for a place to be angry at. And it's, you know, sometimes there's not a lot of places to put it. No, I think it's very useful. Thank you. Yeah. Especially for students, um, that work at all on contentious sensitive topics. It's kind of the, the pressures that I work through with students. It takes a good month for them not to jump on a bandwagon. So like, if, for example, right good now, advice. if you're not explicitly stating your support for the group that's claiming some damages, then as happened to you, you were then automatically, as you say, story as being yeah. in opponent's corner. So it is, and it is kind of, it's, it's human nature, especially when it is so contestual, right? Yeah. Um, and the legal system is built that way. Um, so I, I, I wanted to just, um, finish out if we could, um, in terms of where the, um, chapter and what was the what was the order and the sequence of your work in terms of did the, this chapter and this work come out of the larger project and if you could talk about the larger project a little bit that'd be great yeah so, so, yeah it really was like you know a thesis became a dissertation became a so last train to Auschwitz for French National Railways and the journey to accountability is the book about the French railways from the war to battles in France battles in the United States but even after I've finished it, and I'm sure people listening to this can relate, you finish a paper, you finish a class, and you just have more questions, you know, and you're like, man, that was crazy. I wonder if anyone else has struggled with this. And then this book came because it was like a further grappling. And, and now that I was no longer totally consumed with the trains, I was able to listen to the conflicts other people were studying in Rwanda, you know, in Uganda, in Cambodia and say like, well, what are you seeing? And, and uh, that was really helpful. You know, to, to have that community around um, in thinking this through. That's the excellent. And are you are you working on anything in particular right now? Yeah, on the same themes. Well, one, I have a book coming out in August that's on a slightly different theme, but in a way, not. I guess uh, it's a new book on negotiation that really places uh, looks at oppression and power really differently in negotiation than it's ever been done before. But that was really because my Baltimore students were like, okay, these negotiation books do not make sense to us. So we had to write one that actually was relevant for people who were trying to get stability from historic places of being historically marginalized. It's like a different world. And so they were sort of teaching me and we kind of wrote that one together. And now I'm continuing to write about um, this summer focused on corporations and like they don't know how to respond to these histories. They're still, they went to business school, maybe, you know? And then they're just like busy trying to keep their business alive. And then all of a sudden someone tells them that like a hundred years ago, someone did what to who, and they don't know how to react. So I'm taking the the benefit of the doubt approach of like, a lot of times they just don't know what to do other than have a legal reaction. Um, 
So that's what I'm focused on now. And yeah, I guess that each project just sort of comes out of the last in a weird way when you're when you're in this work, as I'm sure sure you and your students know. Per, per se. Well, thank you ever so much. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to for uh, new work, especially on what it is that corporations may be able to do yeah. uh, to at least uh, address or acknowledge um, some of the issues that then can often impact and derail. Uh, no pun intended there. Sorry about that. For uh, <laughs> the sake of uh, their business enterprises, but it is a, it is a big factor, and and this issue of you know how could we maybe start to incorporate a little bit uh, more respect and grace for individuals like you say a little bit cheesy, cheesy but yeah see, seeing the humanity in each other rather than just some kind of uh resource that might be able to provide a profit um i, I think that is a big part of this puzzle that is, that is it yeah i think that's it wrong way to go yeah <laughs> but yeah and and again it's going to be individuals and smaller community efforts that will then hopefully drive towards yes. a sort of pivot point on the more national and international level people can get hopeless but those but those small efforts actually really do add up yeah they really do excellent well thank you again for your time sarah thank and, uh, you i appreciate uh, you providing this wonderful insight for uh, the new books network yeah thanks for the intervention thank you <laughs>